0: Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray now that as we reflect on your judgment of Israel um, back in Amos' day, that we might learn from their mistakes and that we might live lives that are pleasing to you in response to your grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I try to, uh, w- when I give someone a gift, I try to do it freely. I try not to use gifts as bribes, it's difficult with children, I know, I'm inclined to use gifts as bribes with children, but I try not to use gifts as bribes. I try not to give a gift just so that I'll get a gift in return. I do try to give freely, no strings attached, but when I give a gift, I can't help but have a few expectations. Let me give you two two expectations that I have when I give gifts. Expectation number one. I think it's only fair that the person acknowledges me as the giver, acknowledges that it's a gift even. So, imagine a situation um, I give you a nice Christmas present, okay, say a nice Hawaiian shirt as I would. i give you this beautiful Hawaiian shirt. I hope that you would acknowledge me as the giver. I hope you would say, thank you, for example. Not, good, I deserve it, or something like that. And uh, as you wear that Hawaiian shirt every day, as I'm sure you would, and someone comments to you, great shirt, I hope you would acknowledge that it's a gift. Imagine I give you this lovely Hawaiian shirt, someone says to you, great shirt, and you say, yeah, thanks. Chose it myself. Bought it with my own money. Got good taste, don't I? I'd be disappointed if I heard you say that. I didn't give you the gift so that you'd acknowledge me. But still, I think it's only fair that you do. Don't you? I mean, you'd feel the same, wouldn't you? Yeah? All right, perhaps you wouldn't give a Hawaiian shirt. I would give a Hawaiian shirt. I think think it's only fair that you acknowledge that it's a gift. Second, second expectation. I think it's fair that I hope that the gift that I've given you creates some kind of relationship between us some sort of bond of loyalty between us so imagine I've given you this lovely new Hawaiian shirt for Christmas a week later we end up at a New Year's Eve party together um, of course you're wearing the Hawaiian shirt as you would and it, it, at this party it's full of people who know you but they don't know me So you're here at this party, and for the whole party, I'm sitting in the corner, no-one's talking to me. Meanwhile, you're having a great time, prancing around in your lovely Hawaiian shirt, everyone telling you how beautiful it is, you're the life of the party, but you never take the time to say hello to me. You never introduce me to anyone, to all your buddies. You even laugh along when someone makes a snide comment about the bloke with the boring shirt in the corner. Um, you, You don't even admit that you know me. And all along... You're wearing my Hawaiian shirt, the shirt I gave you. Again, I didn't give you the shirt as a bribe. I wasn't trying to buy your friendship. But really, that's pretty ugly, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, it is, isn't it? It's pretty ugly. The fact that I've given you that nice shirt, surely it creates some kind of relational loyalty. Surely you could at least acknowledge that you know me, care what other people think. God didn't just give Israel a Hawaiian shirt. God gave Israel everything. Everything they have, everything they are. But in Amos chapter 6, we see Israel's ugly reaction. A reaction where they don't acknowledge God as the giver, where they don't care about God, where they don't care what other people think about God. And God tells us how angry it makes him. First part of chapter 6 in Amos, Amos addresses some so-called notable men. Uh, so these men are leaders. They're men, he says, that everybody comes to, everybody looks up to. Uh, and interestingly, uh, just notice here that it's not just in Israel, but also in Amos's own country of Judah. There's a mention of Zion here and two nations. So Amos is speaking to the leaders in, in Israel and in Judah. And he says, well, God says that the, these leaders are complacent. They feel secure. They're, they're, they're smug and self-satisfied. They're not, not secure in God, They're secure in themselves, secure in their nation, in their strength. Um, They call themselves the foremost nation. God's not happy about it. Amos chapter 6 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Amos chapter 6 and verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Again, don't think Fonzie woe here. This woe means I'm angry with you. It's bad for you. It's the opposite of blessed. Okay, this is a bad woe. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. And to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, that's Israel, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. They're complacent. They think their country is the foremost country. Literally the the head of nations is a direct translation. They feel strong. They feel secure. But God's got a number of answers for their so-called security. The first thing he says, he says, if you go and look around, you will find that, You, the so called head of nations, are not much different from anybody else. If you go and check out the other nations, you'll see you're really just one among many. Verse 2 Go to Calnair and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? Answer historically and geographically well, not really better off, not really worse off, not much larger, not much smaller. Israel and Judah, they're just two countries among many in God's world, despite their self-important claim to be head of the nations. It's the first thing, they're one nation among many. The next thing he says in verse 3, I reckon it's a bit hard to understand. Uh, Amos says that these leaders put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. All I'm going to have to make you work hard with me to understand this, I think. The word put off. You put off the evil day. In some places it's used to mean uh, expel in some places but I think uh, a more useful uh, use of it in other places is to taunt or to mock. Okay, To mock. Uh, and if you go back to chapter 5, you'll see that there's a very similar expression to the evil day that's used uh, and it's used there to describe the sinful times in which Israel were living. So What's the idea that Israel, these leaders, they mock the evil day. They mock the the sin of of Israel around them. I think they're making light of it. They don't care that Israel around them is sinful. They're just laughing at all the wickedness around them. And in so doing, Amos says, they're bringing near a reign of terror. Now that could be referring to God's coming judgment. But, But I think here probably it's talking about the human reign of terror, which is overcoming israel the kind of oppression and injustice that amos has been talking about for the last six chapters okay so put it together here's what i think verse three means the fact that israel don't care about the sin around them that they put off the evil day they don't care about the sin around them that the leaders of israel they are bringing in a reign of terror a reign of oppression and misery for the poor in israel have a look with me verse three you put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror And Amos then then describes these letters. They're self-satisfied, self-indulgent lifestyles. Again, they're not grieving over Israel's sin. They don't care about about, uh, Jacob, the nation of Jacob, and how they're ignoring God. They're not grieving. They're not leading Israel in repentance and godliness. No way. They're too busy partying. Verse 4. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatten calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. God says it's coming to an end. It's coming to an end for these self satisfied leaders. He says literally, You're going to be the head of the exiles. It's a It's a biting play on words. Now back in verse one they say, We're the head of the nations. God says you'll be the head all right. You'll be head of the queue as you go into exile. Verse seven. Therefore you will be among the first, the head to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Do you get the picture so far? So these Israelite leaders, they're smug, they're self-satisfied. They don't care about the evil and godlessness around them. They don't care that people don't acknowledge or obey God. They don't care that it's leading to oppression and injustice. They, they are so enjoying the good things that they've got, so secure in themselves and their prosperity, lounging around in luxury. But what are they forgetting? All the good things that they're enjoying, they come from the God they're ignoring. All the good things they're enjoying, they come from the God the nation is ignoring. All the good things they're enjoying, they come from the God who demands that they, as the leaders, bring repentance to Israel. Here is Israel, here is their leaders, wearing God's Hawaiian shirt, so to speak, with no loyalty to God, no care about who he is, no care about what other people think of him, all along enjoying his shirt. No wonder it makes him mad. Make me mad. Uh, Next section. Next section, God announces more judgment on Israel. At this time, the problem is their pride. And specifically, it's their pride in their fortresses. So they're proudly trusting in their own strength, thinking their fortresses make them secure. God says, you're going down. You're going to be defeated. Verse 8. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor, I hate the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. And then Amos tells us a little story to kind of picture what happens when God delivers up the city. Um, Again, the details are a little obscure, a little bit difficult to get, but it's meant to be a picture of what happens when when God delivers the city. The overall story, I think, is clear. God uh, overthrows uh, overthrows the city like he's promised. Ten men in a house, all from one family, they're all killed. Everybody killed. A relative comes to dispose of the bodies. Uh, He finds someone hiding in the house and he says to them, is anyone with you? That is, is anybody alive? Are there any survivors? And so no, everybody's dead. And then the relative says, don't mention God's name. Have a look and then we'll think about what it means. Verse 9. If 10 men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone still hiding in there, is anyone with you, anyone alive? And he says no, then he will say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. Okay, why mustn't they mention the name of the Lord? It's, just like, it's like, I wasn't going to mention the name of the Lord. Were you going to mention the name of the Lord? It's a little bit of a strange thing to say, isn't it? Why mustn't they mention the name of the Lord? Well, I take it's because he's the one who did it. God did this. God has judged them. They don't want to call on God and bring him near. God is now their enemy. God now is bringing trouble for them. Uh, Verse 11, Amos confirms it, says it again. God's going to smash Israel. Verse 11, For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Israel are proud, trusting in their fortresses to protect them. But again, what are they forgetting? God's the one who protects them. God is the one who gives them their fortresses. It's all God's gift to them. But they don't care. They happily wear wear God's Hawaiian shirt and tell everybody else what good taste they've got. Rely on themselves. Refuse to acknowledge God. It makes him angry. Last section. Last section, God again announces judgment. Again, it's because of Israel's pride. This time, it's their pride in their military victories. And again, it's a little bit obscure, I think, uh, to, to look at to start with. So Amos starts off by giving us a picture. It's a picture of a rocky cliff. Okay, so imagine uh, it's this rocky cliff. You know, you've got bear, bear girls climbing it or something like that. Okay, there's nothing there, just rock, cliff, steep slope. Uh, Amos asks two questions about this steep slope. He says, first Can a horse gallop around up there? Answer, no way. Bear Bear grills can barely climb up there. Maybe maybe a mountain goat up there. No horses. All right, it's impossible. Uh, Second question he asks, can you plow up there with an ox? Again, answer, no way. It's made of rock. The ox will fall off the cliff. It's impossible. You're not going to plow up there with an ox. Verse 12, the questions. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? Some things impossible. But, Amos now says, and listen now because if you don't get the connection you'll miss it all. Amos says, Israel are now claiming to, be doing the, to, to have done the impossible. Israel are now claiming to have done the impossible. They are claiming that they have won their military victories themselves. They don't mention that God's helped them. They think we ourselves did it with our strength, with our good strategy, with our cleverness, with our might and power, with our own strength, we've won the battles. Amos says, like, ploughing a rocky cliff, it's impossible. It's not possible that you did it unless God enabled you to do it. It's impossible that you did it in your own strength. And worse than that, he says, what you're doing, by claiming to have done this in your own strength, what you're doing is you're taking something good, that is God's victory on your behalf, and you're turning it into something that will be your judgment something that will be very dangerous to you as they boast that they've won the victory for themselves they're stealing the credit that belongs to God and in so doing they will turn God's just and righteous victory into something that will prove to be bitter poison for them half of 3 verse 12 see if you can follow it all uh, i'll pick it up at the beginning two horses run on the rocky crags There's one plow there with oxen but you have turned justice into poison God's just victory into poison for yourself. The fruit of righteousness, God's righteous victory into bitterness for yourself. You, how have you done this? You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Kanaim by our own strength? Can you see the problem? God's Hawaiian shirt and they're taking all the credit, stealing the credit. Okay, I've got a few illustrations for you here and a joke. I'll give you a warning. I'd like laughter for this joke later on. I got none at nine o'clock. Uh, first illustration. I remember once uh, listening to an interview with Roger Waters. and uh, Everybody, of course, knows who Roger Waters is. He was uh, in the band Pink Floyd. And he wrote pretty much all of the songs on perhaps the best albums in the history of the world, like Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall. Uh, 1985, Roger Waters left the band, assuming, rightly, that it would fall apart without him. Uh, but the band kept on going. Uh, Roger tried to pursue a solo career, wrote some more genius albums, but it was never anywhere near, as pink, anywhere near as big as Pink Floyd. And meanwhile, Pink Floyd went from strength to strength. They wrote a couple of other terrible albums uh, and were enormous, uh, world famous. Uh, Waters describes in this interview how he felt. So he would go and he'd play this genius concert to Three Men and a Dog uh, and, and he'd walk home and there's this big stadium with Pink Floyd written all over the top, and thousands upon thousands of people screaming, and he listens, and they're playing his songs that he wrote, all the music for, all the words for. And he says, not only were they playing my songs, they didn't even understand them. They're songs that I wrote. And the the other members of the band, they're enjoying all the fame, all the fortune, taking all the credit for his work. Waters sued, as you would, over the future use of the band's name and material. Why was he so angry? because he felt they were taking the credit for his work. It's a common theme in movies too, isn't it? Uh, someone else taking the credit. So I've asked a couple of movie buffs uh, this week, Sean and Evan, um, to give me movies where someone steals the credit, takes credit for something they didn't do. I haven't seen either of these. But Accidental Hero is one example. So, oh, I've got one R. I don't think anybody has seen it. Of course, Jason's seen it. Um, uh, so Dustin Hoffman, I think, saves some people. Someone else gets the credit. All right, Um, someone else takes the credit for them. Um, Social network, haven't seen that either, but perhaps some people have. Apparently Mark Zuckerberg allegedly steals the idea for Facebook from Cameron and Tyler Winkelvoss, great names, and takes the credit for it. It's a common theme, isn't it, stealing the credit. Maybe it's happened to you at work. I think it probably happens quite often. People at Bible study were talking about it happening to them. Uh, I did all the work, my manager took the credit. Something like that. Here's my joke, last week I heard a joke, see if you get it. I started to realise my new boss likes to take the credit for things he didn't do when I said to him, it's a nice day, isn't it? And he said, yes it is, thanks for noticing. (laughs) Thanks for laughing. Don't get it, come on. It's a nice day, isn't it? Yes it is, thanks for noticing. As if I made it a nice day. I have to explain it. It's It's all in the timing. (laughs) God has won victory for Israel. It's impossible that they could have done it on their own. It's his gift to them. It is proud and it is wrong for them to take the credit for what God did. Amos finishes by saying that God's had enough. Israel will be defeated. Verse 14. For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, a house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebohamath to the valley of the Arabah. Okay, can you see Israel's problem here in Amos chapter 6? It's their failure to respond rightly to God's good gifts. They think they've earned all their wealth and prosperity. They don't recognize it's God's gift to them they think their fortresses will protect them they don't realize it's god's gift to them they think they've won their battles they don't realize it's god's gift to them they don't realize this stuff it would all be impossible without god like plowing a rocky cliff you cannot win battles unless god enables you a fortress is not going to protect you if god isn't protecting you you don't get wealth you don't get prosperity unless god's given it to you god's given israel everything he is their only hope He is their only protection, but Israel will not give him the credit. They don't care about God, they won't acknowledge God, they don't care how other people are treating him, they don't care what's happening to his nations, they enjoy his good gifts, they wear his Hawaiian shirt, but there is no relational loyalty, no acknowledgement of God as giver. It makes God mad. And he says, you're out of here, I'm sick of you, I'm going to defeat you, send you into exile. Okay, for the next few minutes, I'm going to um, use a sledgehammer to smash a very small nail. I just want to show you over and again, over again from the New Testament that God has given you everything. Friends, everything we are, everything we have, it comes to us from God. Uh, that's true of our salvation, of the fact that we could have our sin forgiven, that we could be restored to right relationship with God, the fact that we could possibly go to heaven that can only be God's gift to us. Uh, do you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? He's rich, he's smart, he's famous, he's blessed by God, he's a keeper of God's law, and he says, he says to Jesus, he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's Jesus' ultimate answer? He says, well, I'll tell you what, see if you can thread a camel through a needle. Get the picture? Needle, camel. Jesus says, with man this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. How Are you going to inherit eternal life? Only if God's going to do it for you. Or the Apostle Paul put it this way, and I've put this on your outline. I'm going to start working through these verses on your outline now. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God saves us. What do we contribute? Just sin. That's it. Just the need to be saved. Nothing to be self-satisfied about there. It's God's good gift. It's not just our salvation. Who we are. It is a gift to us from God. All our gifts, all our abilities. In the church in Corinth... The Corinthians were proudly arguing and boasting about who was the best and which was the best apostle and who they should follow and all that kind of stuff. And the Apostle Paul responded by saying the next thing I've got in your outline there. He says, Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive from God? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did did not? You feel proud of your intelligence? Do you think think your looks set you apart? Do you think that uh, your diligence has got you where you are? Do you feel like your discipline has made you the person that you are? Whatever it is, God gave it to you. God gave it to you. The same with all the stuff that we have. God gave it to us. On your outline there from 1 Timothy, God richly provides. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is the sort of thing that you do if you know it's all God's gift to you. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Our salvation, our gifts, our money, it's all from God. In fact, our every moment, our every breath, every atom of our being, every second of our existence, it is all a gift from God. On your outline from James. Now, listen. You who say, "Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are... Hevel. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you want to say, "If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. It's a very simple point, isn't it? God gives us everything. It's dead simple. But if it's true, then that needs to change everything. Doesn't it? It's not just a question of How are we spending our lives? How are we spending our time? How are we spending our money? How are we spending our gifts? It's a question, what are we doing with the life God gave us? What are we doing with the time God has gifted us with? What are we doing with the money and the gifts that God has entrusted to us? It's a whole different way of thinking about life. And it means we cannot be like Israel in Amos chapter 6. We we must never be smug, self-satisfied, holier-than-thou, thinking that we are better than other people sort of people. We come here as wretched sinners saved only by the grace of God in Jesus and the more we know of this God, the more we realise that everything we are, all the so-called gifts that we boast in, our beauty or our intelligence or our career or our discipline or whatever it is, it's a gift to us from God. We can't be the yes it is a nice day, thank you for noticing sort of people. We need to give credit where it is due. We must not steal the credit from God. We need to acknowledge it as a gift and we need to acknowledge that it creates a relational responsibility. We can't just lounge around in the luxury that God has given us and not care about God. We can't just enjoy the Hawaiian shirt and not care that we live in a world that hates the one who gave it to us. Uh, John Piper, in his book Don't Waste Your Life, puts it like this, talking about living life that we know is God's gift. He says, if you are a Christian, you are not your own. Christ has bought you at the price of his own death. You now belong doubly to God. He made you and he bought you. That means your life is not your own. It is God's. Therefore, the Bible says, glorify God in your body. God made you for this. He bought you for this. This is the meaning of your life. Glorify God. God friends does that describe your life do you recognise that it is all a gift to you from God are you honestly and humbly seeking to glorify God with it with your stuff with your gifts or are you walking around in the Hawaiian shirt that God gave you taking the credit for yourself and ignoring the giver Friends, we need to learn from Israel's mistake. We need to acknowledge and love the God who has given us everything. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so sorry, even embarrassed, that we go on in our lives boastful and proud as if we have got something to boast about as if we've saved ourselves by our righteousness, as if we've given ourselves the wealth and prosperity and good lives that we enjoy because we're smart or because we're hardworking. Father, we acknowledge that like ploughing a rocky cliff, it's impossible that we could have done this stuff on our own. It is all a good gift from you to us. Father, we want to say this morning thank you. We want to acknowledge you as the giver. We want to say sorry for our failure to acknowledge you, for our stealing of the credit. We want to say sorry that we fail to care for you and for your reputation. And we pray that you'll please forgive us and help us to seek genuinely to live the lives that you have given us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.